Welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast, Episode 7. I don't think I ever really understood the PIC mentality until I started flying out here. In the United States, there's such a large uh, system that is supporting you as a pilot when you fly. And that's not to say that flying in the States is easy by any means. I'm just saying that the variables out here, uh, it's almost like this place made me into a PIC. And so, yeah, it's that PIC mentality that I didn't realize you could really get to this sort of level um, flying with all the support that you have in the United States. The Plain Faith Podcast is a podcast about missionary aviation and the stories of missionary aviators who have taken seriously Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations and are using airplanes to be His witnesses at the ends of the earth. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Your host for today's show will be Jimmy Tidmore, who, in addition to hosting this podcast, is a pastor and a pilot residing with his family in what is known as the Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama. He is very interested in promoting missionary aviation and helping prospective missionary pilots reach the mission field. And now, with these introductions out of the way, let's get started on another great episode of the Plain Faith Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Plain Faith Podcast. My name is Jimmy Tidmore and I'm very excited to bring you another episode of this podcast about missionary aviation. But before we get to today's show, I'd like to add a new segment into the intro. And that is a segment where we read a review we have received in iTunes. Reviews are a great way to help us get the word out and I appreciate all the folks who have left reviews since the show started. So thank you to Iowa CFI, King Potter, Ride Runner, Andy P2000, M Borzy, Tiger Insider, Dave M14, and Fly Air Mike. I really appreciate each of you taking the time to leave a review for the show in iTunes. It definitely means a lot to me. So let me share one of these reviews with you all today. It is a review from a few months back by a listener who goes by Ride Runner in iTunes. And Ride Runner gives the show five stars and starts his review by saying that the show is a must listen if you are interested in aviation. And the review goes on to say, Thank you, Jimmy, for interviewing people within the small world of mission aviation and allowing them to share the awe inspiring stories of the challenges they face and the people they serve. Your questions are spot on and provide an opportunity for your guests to share about the lifestyle of serving in mission aviation. I look forward to your future podcasts. They encourage and inspire me in my training. And Ride Runner concludes by saying, if you know someone who is interested in aviation, share this podcast with them. Not many people are aware of the need for missionary pilots and what they do. So Ride Runner, thank you so much for this kind review. I'm glad you are enjoying the show, and I appreciate you letting others know that you are by giving us a review in iTunes. Now, for the rest of you, if you are enjoying the show, I would appreciate a review from you as well. I'm going to start reading a review or two on each episode, and I will try to eventually read them all. So if you're enjoying the show, I'd really, really appreciate a review. 
Okay, so let's turn our attention now to today's guest. On today's episode, we will be hearing from another individual named Pete. And yes, if you're keeping track, that is the third Pete we have had on the show in a row. And so future parents, if you want your child to be a missionary pilot, you might want to consider the name Pete because apparently there's something about that name that leads people into missionary aviation. But in all seriousness, on today's show, we are going to be hearing from Pete Neal, an MAF pilot who serves with his family in Indonesia. Now, you may remember in Episodes 1 and Episode 5, we heard from two other MAF pilots serving in Indonesia. But our guest for today, while based in Indonesia with MAF, serves in a different part of the country and flies a different plane as well. He has a really good story to tell, and I look forward to sharing it with you now. Well, Pete, I've enjoyed your Instagram feed for a long time now, and I'm glad to finally get the opportunity to speak with you and have you share the stories behind some of those pictures with our listeners. Thank you so much for making the time for us today. I am very appreciative, and I know the listeners are as well. So let me welcome you now to the Plain Faith Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. Um, I know we've been working for a couple weeks here to make this happen. We're uh, about 13 hours time difference, and so that takes some uh, some scheduling. But yeah, really glad uh, to be here and to, to share um, about our time and what we're doing here in Indonesia. Well, great, Pete. I really can't wait to hear. So why don't we begin with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Tell us about your family and so forth. Yeah, um, I grew up outside of Chicago, uh, and so did my wife. We actually were just 20 minutes away from each other and um, met in uh, church youth group, and uh, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> um, and uh, let's see, what else can I say? Um, my dad and my uh, mom, they're, uh, they're both professional people. My dad is a family uh, child and marriage psychologist, so I, I sort of call him a professional dad. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and my mom is an occupational therapist for the, uh, for the local school system. Um, and uh, yeah, so we call Chicago home, and that's still what, you know, we still call that home. So Very cool. So tell me about your wife, and you have one child, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife, uh, her name is Joy, and uh, she is a, a copy editor. So she um, edits books and, and goes writes for actually other pastors and things. Uh, so she enjoys that. And uh, my son, Anders, he is six. We moved to Indonesia when he was one. Uh, and so his essentially his childhood experience so far has been here in Indonesia, which makes him into a pretty interesting little kid. <laughs> That's great. So, so tell me about how that you first became a follower of Jesus. Yeah, well, I was um, uh, very uh, uh, lucky to grow up in a, in a family culture, an extended family culture, and, and even um, just a, a circle of friends who uh, love Jesus. And um, you know, I've been part of the church that was you know, my, my growing up, and so things of faith were just uh, part, of, um, part of who I was. And it wasn't until I was 13, 14 or so and when I made... Um, you know, all of that family culture stuff, like I made that my own in my own relationship with Christ. And, uh, you know, since then, it's been a, a non-linear relationship of, uh, of belief and doubt and faith and fear and, you know, the whole gamut of the, the spiritual experience. So 
I read somewhere, maybe in your, your bio somewhere that, um, you felt a call to missions aviation at a young age. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually kind of a funny story, especially since we're doing this, this podcast, um, you know, growing up outside of Chicago, you've heard of Moody Bible Institute. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I was 12 years old and I was in the car with my mom driving into the city to a museum and we were listening to Moody Bible Radio um, and uh, there was a uh, there was somebody being interviewed and he was talking about missions aviation and uh, for some reason at 12 I heard that story and it just just stuck with me and it was kind of like right then and there I thought man this is this is what I want to do um, and uh, and and that has been, you know, that was my motivation through high school, through college, through tech school, and uh, pretty thankful that something that I heard about when I was 12 and I had a dream about, I actually get to do. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. I'm I'm not in the NFL, and that's what I wanted to do when I was 12. <laughs> that's why I, I feel lucky, because, you know, we all, you know, when we're younger, we have these dreams and things. I guess I wanted to be an astronaut, so I guess being a pilot is close enough. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the next best thing. Yeah. Then what would you say came first, a, a call to missions or a passion for aviation? Did you feel called to missions before you felt called to missions aviation or, or did they kind of come together? Yeah, I'd say um, they sort of came together. And, and as with all uh, dreams and, and desires in life, uh, maybe ambitions, like things you want to do, they, they sort of take on a life of their own and they uh, they sort of mutate <laughs> throughout, uh, throughout your life as far as what you think it's going to be and, and what you initially set out to do. Um, but, uh, I don't have any history of, uh, aviation in my family and no history of, of missions. Um, and, uh, I think if I were to describe the, the interest, it probably started with aviation um, and growing up in a Christian family and having a culture of faith, uh, hearing about how I could uh, do aviation and also serve the kingdom in a really specific way, uh, a useful, helpful way. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, that I'm just thankful that there was an outlet for that. So I'd say first it was aviation, as you know, most little kids have an interest in something, and then there was a way to serve God with that. Okay, so. Before you heard this program on, on Moody Bible Radio, you were already, like a lot of young kids, really interested in airplanes and aviation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, and, and so then you hear this program, and, and the two kind of come together in your mind. Yeah, correct. And, and some, one thing that I would add to that, uh, it's interesting, as, as you get to know people who uh, work out here, um, you kind of have two different types in, in my experience. I think you got guys and gals who uh, they have a uh, just a natural bent towards maintenance and, and detail and the skills of aviation. You know, it just, it just seems like they just, uh, it's a gift that they have on the technical side. And then you have other, other guys and gals who they receive this incredibly strong calling where, you know, in, in, in a sense, you know, the, the clouds part at some missions conference and they, they feel like God has called them to do this with their life. And so they stand very firmly um, on that call, or maybe they stand very firmly in the other way, like on their, on their skill, like they think that God has gifted them in this way. I'm kind of uh, maybe a little different story um, in the sense where 
I'm, I'm not the best pilot. I'm not, you know, a particularly gifted mechanic. Um, and I don't think I ever received this strong, strong calling on my life. I think that, um, that uh, mission aviation sounded like something that I could, I could do to serve, to serve God. And I think that God has blessed me in it. Um, and so I, I, I share that part of my story just to encourage folks who, you know, maybe they're interested in mission aviation and they don't feel like they have the gifting or they're waiting for this big call to send them, I, I just encourage them like, man, step forward in it. I mean, you're not going to know if the blessing's in it unless you're moving forward. Uh, and so that might be something a little bit outside of the typical story of somebody who does this. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that. One thing I have learned over the years, and even since I've been recording some future episodes for this, is that everybody's calling stories a little bit different. Yeah, and yeah. there's, there's, we have this mindset that there's this stereotypical supernatural experience that takes place mm. when, when we're called, but that's not necessarily how it works out. It's, it's usually a process of circumstances and, yeah. and, and, and giftings and, and passions and desires that, that sort of lead us in a, a particular direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say that, um, that you know, it really is uh, God's um, direction and and His plan for the for the ministry that uh, that He eventually leads us into. Because I think about um, some of the guys and gals in my maintenance class, or some of the guys and gals who initially started fundraising, and and I just think like, wow, these are really gifted, motivated people. And I sometimes I'm just shocked that I'm the one who is actually out here doing the work. And I, you know, I have to stand in that, um, and, and believe that God has me here for a reason, uh, and that he's, he's working through me. Yeah. Amen. Well, that, that's some good advice already for someone who might be wrestling with or struggling with a, a call to missions and trying to figure, figure all that out. Do you have any other advice for someone who might be working uh, through such uh, a calling? Yeah, I uh, particularly with a um, with a technical calling or a mm-hmm. uh, you know like a technical ambition, it's a very uh, long road. Um, I think uh, you know specifically speaking about missions, um, our HR our MAF HR representative he went to a, a missions summit where there were a number of different you know missions organizations uh, represented and and they had this meeting with uh, with with the human resources directors just to talk about staffing and you know, just the, the culture of missions these days. And, um, you know, they kind of went around the circle, the table, and they asked a specific question and they were, they said, um, you know, how long does it take for somebody to go from knowing nothing about the ministry of what you're doing to go through the training and then to finally be, uh, in a, in a, in a place of, um, effectiveness or ministry on the field and the non-technical missions organizations that were, represented there. And what I mean by non-technical is, is more like if you have something, uh, like technical is like you, you bring a very specific technical skill like IT or aviation or, or maintenance or, or, or base ops or something like that. The non-technical missions, they were saying it takes about three years mm-hmm. to go from n- zero understanding to being effective on the field. And, and uh, the technical uh, organizations represented such as MAF, um, you know, the, the typical time it takes about eight years. Uh, and so 
I, w- I would, uh, you know, if I have more advice, it would be to just stick with it uh, and understand that it is a very long road <laughs> to get to uh, to get to the field and, and feel like you're being effective. And I'd, and I'd say that's my experience too. Um, I started flying, uh, not to get ahead of uh, your questions here, but uh, just briefly, I started flying in started flying in 2005 and finally got on the field in an effective role in 2013. Um, so it's quite a long time. That that is a long time. And and actually that is exactly where we were headed next. You talked about having the typical interest as a, as a young boy in airplanes and, and aviation, but maybe when did you take your first flight in a small airplane and when did that fire really ignite and you realize this is something I really want to want to do with my life? <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, as, as I was younger, being inf- interested in aviation, and then when I was 12, I heard this story about a missionary pilot. Uh, and so the natural next thing for parents, right, they're like, well, let's put him in an airplane, you know, let's see if, if he likes it. So I had my first intro flight when I was 12 in Chicago, and it was just, a, you know, a basic half hour flight. And I remember nothing from that flight other than I just sweated the whole time. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing I remember. <laughs> um, but moving on from there, uh, you know, aviation became more and more of an interest. And, and we went down to, uh, we, were, we were traveling to the East Coast for something. And we went down to um, uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators uh, base. I think they're in North Carolina. Yes. Um, yes. And, they, and that's where JARS is as well, right. another missions organization. So we went, we took a tour there. We also saw Moody Aviation back when they were in Tennessee. And the message that we got from them was don't start doing your flight training um, uh, just at like a local airport. They said, you know, wait until you're ready to get into this type of flying and then we want to train you. Um, to start you at, uh, you know, sort of doing the right things and the way that we fly from the, the ground up. So um, that's, the, that's the advice that we took. Um, but I, I, I'd like to just add this caveat there. The guys who I work with, they come from all sorts of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, they got trained at local FBOs. They were in the military. Um, they went to, you know, Moody Bible Institute and Moody Aviation. So I'm just saying that being here now in Indonesia, you, you, you have all sorts of guys from all sorts of backgrounds and gals doing this sort of work. Yeah. I think, I think it is helpful that you, that you pointed that out and, and, um, and and Moody certainly has a reason for, for, uh, going that route. It fits in their training program, uh, a bit better. But, um, yeah, there's all sorts of different ways I would, I would assume to get, uh, to the point where you, you're ready to, to fly for somebody like MAF. Yeah. Yep. So tell us about your flight training and and so forth. How did all that take place and, and what was your experience like? Well, I always thought, um, I would train with, uh, Moody Aviation, uh, you know, cause they were the cream of the crop. They, you know, as of 15, 20 years ago, when all this was becoming interesting to me, I, as far as I understand it, they were training 80% of all missionary pilots worldwide. Right. So, uh, you know, if you were interested in this, this is where you wanted to go. Um, I had something of a leg up, uh, when it came to Moody because both my parents graduated from Moody Bible Institute. My uncle graduated from there. 
we just have something of a heritage with that school. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a long story about this, but I'll just, uh, share the brief part. I, um, after high school, I, I went and I worked with a youth internship down in Texas and, um, I, I was accepted to Moody, uh, Bible Institute, but I turned them down. I like to say, uh-huh. <laughs> And then um, I, I ended up staying a second year at this youth internship, and so I turned Moody down again um, <laughs> for the second year. And then the uh, the third year, I thought, well, I, I you know I better not gamble with this. I better just go, you know, because they might not let me in for uh, you know give me an acceptance letter for the third year. Um, and honestly, I wasn't the best student, so I, I I imagine that my family had something to do, or I call it our heritage, has something to do with them wanting uh, me to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so anyhow, um, finally make it up to Moody Bible Institute and I'm there for my first year in downtown Chicago, um, as part of my, uh, my Bible training and and with most missions organizations, they want, you know, a year or two or a number of semesters of basic Bible. Um, Mm -hmm. so I was going through that and that was the year that, uh, Moody Aviation was transitioning from, uh, Elizabethton, Tennessee, uh, out to Spokane, Washington. Um, and that was a big, big transition for them. And I just, I thought, okay, I guess I'm, I guess I'm going to Washington. You know, that's, that's where this, this path is going to lead me. But, uh, there was just something in my spirit for whatever reason that just felt like, you know, Washington for as exciting as that sounds, there's just, I don't think I should go there. And it was halfway through my, uh, my first year at Moody Bible Institute that they have their, um, their missions conference. And it was there that I met an MAF representative uh, for the first time, and we got to talking, and he mentioned a school out in Grand Rapids, a school of missionary aviation technology, um, and uh, he recommended that one. I looked into it. It, it was a fantastic uh, one-year maintenance program, and they had a flight program, and they've been around for a long time as well. So I sort of shifted gears, so to speak, or directions, and instead of going out to Spokane, Washington with Moody, I ended up going out to Grand Rapids to start my technical training there. Cool. So your your first year was the maintenance side. Yeah, that's correct. And um, like I mentioned, uh, I, I'm not like a, a naturally gifted mechanic, so that is, that was a huge learning curve for me. And thankfully, uh, I sat between the two smartest guys in the class, and, and they really did a good job of explaining things. And uh, really, you know, they're still good friends of mine to this day. So, <laughs> all right. So, so tell me about the the actual flight training. How did you progress through that, and and what sort of airplanes did you use, and so forth? Yeah. So, um, you know, SMAT or School of Missionary Aviation Technology. You know, they're a much different school than they were ten years ago. Um, so as I explain this process, you know, if you're having lister, listeners interested in SMAP, you know, they probably do something different now. But um, uh, uh, as, you're, as you're going through maintenance, you can also do flying at the same time. Um, or, you know, you finish your maintenance and then you do flying. But they had a, a little, a couple 172, Cessna 172s that we started our training in, just your basic um, trainer. And, and, you know, slowly progressed through uh, private and then uh, instrument, uh, commercial. Um, I got my CFI or my certified flight instructor's license, uh, as well as a, a ground instructor's license. Um, and then got my instrument uh, instructor's license. And so that whole process took about uh, 
two and a half years or so with all the maintenance included. So when you, when you finished, how many hours, flying hours did you have when you finished that program? Oh, let's see. Um, I think I had, by the time I was done with my CFI, more or less 350 hours or so, okay. uh, give or take somewhere around there. And then, and then what did you do? I imagine you needed to build some more time. How did you do that? Did you flight instruct? Uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, that's always a, that's always a, a hurdle that's um, uh, kind of difficult uh, because, you know, if you get your commercial license, I think, uh, there, you know, there's a minimum with that. But then how do, you, how, do you, how do you bridge that gap to then reach the 500 hours or so that, um, that most missions organizations require? And don't hold me to that. I think you have to check with each missions organization as far as the requirements. But, um, yeah, so I did flight instructing for about two and a half years. And then I also flew for an organization called Wings of Mercy. Um, out of Grand Rapids, and we would do um, medical flights for cancer patients between Grand Rapids and then up to um, places like the Mayo Clinic up in Roch- uh, Rochester, I think, uh, okay. up in okay. Minneapolis, somewhere up there. Um, so I think by the time that I uh, started with MAF or I went out there to do my technical evaluation, I had about 1,100 hours, which is much more than that's more than double than most guys, um, but I'm really thankful and uh, for my experience I had in general aviation, and I know that's going to be part of my life for you know forever. So, yeah. So, so did how long? How many years did you flight instruct? Um, about two and a half years. Very good. And and this the other position you said was it was it a volunteer sort of thing? Yeah, it was. It was a great organization, uh, again, called Wings of Mercy, and it's similar to Angel Flights or, uh, you know, there's a number of these organizations throughout the United States, and what they do is it's, uh, you know, they're all a little bit different, but the one in Grand Rapids, it's a, it's a group of volunteer pilots, and they volunteer their aircraft to fly medical patients uh, to different places that they need to go. So, if you were part of this group of pilots, you were on a mailing list and there would be an email that goes out for a need like, you know, Grand Rapids to Chicago or wherever, somewhere in the Midwest. And they would, uh, a pilot who owned an airplane, they would volunteer for it and then they would typically have two pilots. Um, and so it was kind of like you had to be quick on the draw <laughs> to, get, to get a seat. As the email came in, if you responded to it and said, I can be there, then you get your schedule and uh, you know, you show up a day or two later and you go and you do the flight and it's great. You meet new people and uh, you really get to help some, uh, some people who need it. Yeah. The, the, the reason I ask is because that seems like a great way to sort of augment your CFI work or whatever else someone might be doing to build their time. I imagine that that was a good way for you to increase your hours so that you would be qualified to, to get on with one of the missions organizations. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, cool. So do you have any other advice for someone who is in flight training to become a missionary pilot? I, I guess I could speak from uh, the, the things that I saw as a flight instructor within general aviation, and this is something that's true, I think, even in, in, uh, in missions schools, but they have a better structure. Um, and, and this is what I would say. Uh, for all the students, all the primary students who came through um, at my FBO, uh, their success didn't really depend on 
their aptitude, so to speak, their, their, their aptitude for flying, I would say that their success really depended on how often they did their training and if they studied between their lessons. Okay. And that, and that might be straightforward, but there is a big difference between the guy or the gal who would come in and they would fly once every three weeks or once a month and they wouldn't study and then they would get frustrated with their training. And then you got the guy who is able, you know, I know there's some circumstances, there's a guy who's able to come in who, you know, might not be the quickest on the draw with the aptitude part, but he's there twice a week. He's studying in between lessons. He's coming in with questions. Those are the guys and the gals who really move through their training quickly. And I think that if you're able to move through your training at a constant pace, you, it sort of keeps that fire alive. You don't get discouraged with it. Okay, that, that's great advice, not just for missionary pilots, but anybody going through uh, oh, yeah. flight training. And, and yeah. not only do you, do you get through it, you probably save some money in the process as well. Oh, Absolutely. You're not doing as much uh, relearning. And then, uh, you know, if, if your flight training takes long enough, there's a good chance that your flight instructor is going to move on. <laughs> yes. So you got you got to fly with somebody new. <laughs> yes, that's that is a, that's a good point. And if you fly long enough, that is going to happen to you. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Very good advice. So why don't you tell us about the place you're serving and what it's like and how it is different from your home and what you and your wife have been used to and about the difficult things you've had to adjust to? Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, missions, and uh, my wife and I, we went on a number of short-term missions trips um, growing up. Um, and uh, my wife has been to more countries than I can remember. Um, and I did some traveling in Southeast Asia before and a number of missions trips down to Mexico. Um, and so... Uh, I guess, you know, speaking to some of the things you have to adjust to, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's the culture stuff. Uh, people think differently than you. They have different assumptions. Um, you know, the weather is different. Um, the food is different. Uh, and that takes, you know, a lot of, um, I guess, uh, self-humility, which I don't always have, <laughs> to sort of adjust to, um, to your new culture. Um, one of the uh, additionally, one of the other challenges is uh, I think that to get to um, uh, to get to a place to another culture to insert yourself there, it takes a spirit. Uh, it takes a certain measure of adventure. You know, it, it takes a certain drive to go out into the wild blue yonder and, and discover new things. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what we weren't anticipating is that when you finally arrive to where you're going, it really, at least in our, in our case, it requires you to be something of a homebody. Uh, it requires you to, to, to sort of put the travel and adventure part kind of to the side and really dig in to where you're at. Um, and that's a skill that I've had to develop within myself. And, and I'm more of a mover and a shaker, and so is my wife. And so it's been a real learning curve for us to just you know, be here in our neighborhood to be serving in the way that we do day in and day out. Uh, you know, here in Indonesia, we have no seasons. So it's just, it's always hot all the time. And there isn't this, this continual change that we are accustomed to. 
So, um, uh, that's not to say that, uh, that there isn't so many good things about being here. And we love the Indonesian culture with all of its quirks. It's kind of a love-hate relationship. Um, we've we've uh, developed lots of close friendships um, here with our with our neighbors and the people on our team. And we're just so thankful <laughs> that we get to raise our kid in a different culture with uh, with its pros and its cons. You know. Yeah. So, what was the process of ending up there? How did you narrow down to there? How much was MAF involved in, in, in sort of saying this is where we need you? How did all that work out? I'm not really familiar with other missions organizations and their process, um, but when you are going through the candidacy um, candidacy process with MAF, uh, they ask you, you know, are you drawn to any certain part of the world? You know, are, do you think you want to be on a big team or a little team? Do you think you could be on a single pilot base or do you want to be, you know? So they ask you all those questions and then they, uh, they invite you to uh, consider one of their options. You know, they, they make a recommendation um, and then you can accept it or, or not. Uh, in our case, we were originally assigned to Africa and... Uh, for whatever reason, we just felt like a yellow light. Um, stepping into missions, we felt a lot of green lights as far as missions itself, as far as MAF, the fact that it's aviation and the risks that that brings along with it. But when we were assigned to Africa, uh, in myself and in my wife's spirit, we both felt like a yellow light, not like a absolutely not, but something other than a green light, so to speak. And we, um, just presented that to our candidacy committee and we said, yeah, we just, for whatever reason, we just need to take a pause. So, um, they did some considering and it was about a week process of having meetings, uh, with different people within MAF and sort of teasing apart, you know, where we should go. And, and ultimately they invited us, uh, to serve in Indonesia. Um, and that's been a really, uh, good fit for us here. So from there, you decide this is where you you want to go, and you agree on that with MAF. Where was that in in the process? Did you have to then go raise funds? Had you already raised funds? Yeah, good question. Um, <clears throat> well, I'll just sort of back up and, and give you the you know just a, a brief tour of the uh, the entrance process into MAF. And yeah, that would um, be great. Yeah, uh, so you have an application process where you send in an application, and uh, you know if that looks pretty good, and that, that's a fairly involved um, process itself. It's not just you know some check boxes. There's essays and things, and references and uh, things like that. Uh, then you're invited out for a technical evaluation, and I believe that MAF does two of those a year, and uh, that is uh, two weeks or so, and it's at the MAF headquarters in Nampa. As outside of Boise, Idaho, and it's one week of uh, maintenance evaluation and one week of flying evaluation. And uh, if if you pass that, then they invite you to uh, what's called candidacy. And uh, candidacy is another two weeks, not necessarily directly following technical evaluation, but it's another couple of weeks of you are learning about MAF and the culture, and MAF is learning about you. And um, it's at the end of that process, at the end of candidacy, that after you've done your application, 
you've demonstrated that you have the basic skills to fly the way that MAF flies, and you've learned enough about MAF, and MAF has learned enough about you that then MAF invites you to come on as full-time staff. And it's during that little season there, at the end of candidacy, when they've already uh, invited you, it's essentially two questions. It's, would you be a part of MAF, and will you serve in this particular place? It's two very specific, very different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and those kind of happen at the same time. So for us, it was like, yes, like we're thankful that we get to be a part of this organization um, and then with the other question, like I mentioned, you know, will we serve in Africa? That's where we felt something of a red light or excuse me, I'm sorry, a yellow light for whatever reason. And we got moved to Indonesia. Very good. That was, that was a great explanation. Thank you. Sure. Pete, what was it about MAF? There's lots of good missions, aviation organizations out there. What sort of drew you to them? And did you consider, uh, serving in any of the other places? Yeah, um, my wife and I, Joy, we, I think we did our due diligence in looking into other missions organizations. Um, and the reason that we ended up deciding with MAF as our first choice um, is because we were very drawn to their broad approach to kingdom ministry. And that sort of phrase can be turned into a critique or into something critical because I'll explain it as opposed to maybe a different organization who might only use their aviation resources to fly their own missionaries. And I don't have a judgment around that. I think that, um, that to only fly your own missionaries is a very focused way to use your aviation resource. And I see value in that. Um, but for me, uh, MAF, they see ministry with, you know, they, they paint with a very broad stroke and, um, you know, I fly uh, some pastors, and uh, but a lot of our the work that we do is supporting um, uh, supporting communities, and that's with medical flights. That's um, flying uh, the um, the governors around so they can do their work, and and you know, different personality types or maybe different church backgrounds are going to find value in the way that they serve. But I'm able to find value in the way that MAF serves in in. Uh, at my base, um, and uh, and that's uh, you know that's one of the reasons why we chose MAF. Uh, they're just very broad in their approach to kingdom ministry, and and it draws all sorts of different types of people <laughs> of, of why they want to serve with the airplane, and it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Thank thanks for explaining that. It's good for people to hear the different focuses of of the different organizations and so forth, because there are several good options out there and they, and they do have different approaches and, and different focuses and it is sort of what, what fits best with you and, and the way you feel called, I would guess. Yeah. And one thing I would tack onto that, it's not only the uh, approach to ministry that these different organizations take, it, it seems like each organization draws a certain type of, of person. And I, I won't get into the, you know, the nitty gritty of, the the types of characteristics that might that a certain organization might might draw, but um, there there's a there's a different definite flavor difference between the different uh, missions organizations, and and as as you move into this uh, this lifestyle, um, you know you'll 
you'll pick up on those. And I'm, I'm just thankful that my first choice was MAF and I tend to be a really good fit here. So, so tell me something that surprised you when you got to the mission field, what was something that took you by surprise? You did not expect it at all and, and weren't prepared for it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, I'll kind of get, uh, personal here. Um, I think that the, th- the thing that surprised me the most is that, uh, after we had been on our program for, um, about a year and a half, um, I had finished my, my, my checkout, and I was flying on my own and flying all the routes that we fly. And, you know, you do it dozens and dozens of times. And it's meaningful work. Um, I, I, found, I found a tremendous amount of satisfaction in it. Um, but I think that uh, what, what, what was really challenging for me or what, what sort of was starting to draw out of me is that even though I had arrived and, and done the thing that I've been, I had set out to do, you know, many years ago, and God had led me to this place. It, it's like God gave it to me to do, but I was still feeling uh, dissatisfied on, on some level. And I think that what God was telling me through that was, um, you know, Pete, I can, I can give you your dream, and I can make you effective through it, and I can be glorified through it, and you can be successful in it, but even achieving that, it, it's not going to fill your heart in the way that I can fill your heart. And um, I think that probably, Jimmy, you being in ministry as well, you can get so busy with the, the day-to-day things and the exciting things, um, but it's, it, it's, ministry does not fill the, the thing in your heart that, um, that God wants to fill and, and, and to satisfy. Um, and so, uh, that was, that was very, very surprising, uh, to me and, and very challenging. And, and we're, we're coming off of a season here of, of dealing with that in a number of different ways. Yeah. And I, I think it's particularly, and I haven't considered this until you were talking about that, but you know, you'd already mentioned how long of a process mm. it, it, it was to get there. And, and not only that, but you, you started feeling led to this when you were 12 or 13 years old, right? Mm-hmm. So you had mm-hmm. been thinking about this for a long time. It's a particularly difficult road to take, not just the training, but, but, but then the, the technical evaluation, the, the candidacy process, the, mm-hmm. the, the fundraising and, yeah. and, and, if it, if you're not careful, I imagine I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you could almost make a, an idol out of that. Absolutely. And, and then when you get there, it doesn't satisfy you uh, the way that only God can satisfy you. Is that sort of yeah. what you're saying? No, that's that's uh, that that's that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I I can I can relate to that. I mean, uh, I, seminary wasn't that long, but, but it is sort of the same thing. And you've got this goal, you're working through it and you're trying to get mm-hmm. uh, d- done. And, and that goal, that graduation date uh, kind of becomes the, the high point of your, of your life. Yeah. And, and, but it, but it, in the end is not going to satisfy you in the way that God can satisfy you. So mm-hmm. that, that's very good. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. So do you have any funny stories about some part of the transition language differences that cause confusion or anything along those lines? Oh yeah. There's some, 
there is so much within this culture in Indonesia that is so different than our culture. Obviously, it's it's literally on the other side of the world. Um, it's one of the hottest places on earth. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world, um, and so most of my neighbors are, are Muslim. And you know, we have call to prayer five times a day. Uh, that's rather loud. I, I barely hear it anymore. It's it's just so common. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I I guess. Um, you know, one story that I, I could share came from, uh, or would, would come from language school. Every MAF family who is assigned to Indonesia initially goes to language school in uh, central Java, another island in Indonesia, for about 10 months. And uh, you do nothing with airplanes. All you do is language and culture, um, which I think is a really important part of what we do here. And Because uh, if I didn't have language, my job would be rather difficult and it would be hard to build relationships for sure. Um, but one funny story, which, which makes total sense to me now, but if, if, if I tell it, if it doesn't make sense to you, I, I understand, but I, I pick up on the nuance. I had a, uh, I had a neighbor who wanted to borrow some, um, some money from me. And, uh, it was an, an acquaintance that in my, in my opinion, I, we weren't close enough yet as friends to be asking for money. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And so uh, I told him, no, I, I can't do it. And then he, over the course of about a month, was very persistent in asking for something. He lowered the amount of money that he wanted. He then asked, uh, it then turned into just like a bus ticket. Then he, it went all the way down to like, he just wanted to, um, he wanted my bag. Like I, I, I had like this backpack and he thought it was nice. And so he wanted to have this backpack and, and for his persistence and for the times that he confronted me in the street and he would cut me off with his motorcycle while I was with my son, it, it borderlined on what as a Westerner I would call harassment. And so I would mm-hmm. dig, you know, I would dig my heels in and I'm like, I got to go to this guy's house and I got to confront him or I need to talk to my, my neighborhood leader or, you know, whatever, cause this is getting out of hand. Um, and so, uh, I went to one of my cultural teachers um, and I asked him and I, I explained this whole situation. I'm like, what is going on? I mean, what, you know, what should I do here? And he said that what this guy is doing is, is inappropriate. Like he shouldn't be doing this, but, um, because our neighborhoods are so close knit, everybody knows who I am and everybody knows who he is. And when he initially asked to borrow the money and you said, no, that was an affront to his dignity and respect within the neighborhood. But it was also an affront to my dignity and respect in the neighborhood for this reason. Because I chose not to give or not to lend, it made him look like a guy who was not worthy of being lent to. And it made me look like the guy who was unwilling to lend. Mm. And so by lowering the stakes, so to speak, going from this large amount of money all the way down to just wanting my bag, he was, a, he was basically giving both of us an out by saying, okay, I'll lower the stakes, but at the end of this situation, I have to come out as the guy who, who is still worthy of being lent to, and I'm giving you an out to being the guy who will, who will lend to others. And Interesting. Oh, it was so fascinating, like blew my mind. And in my Western sort of mindset, I was like, wow, I'm looking at this completely different. 
So I ended up giving this guy my bag and his demeanor completely shifted. He, mm-hmm. he was just the nicest guy. He left me alone. We were just friendly. And I saw him going from somebody who was being backed into a corner in a cultural situation that I didn't understand to now being this friendly relationship and resource within my neighborhood. Um, and so, yeah, that's probably one of the weirdest <laughs> mind-bending cultural situations I'd ever been in. Yeah, just something that you could not have understood without talking with someone who did understand the culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in language school, what language did you study? Um, well, Indonesia, as, as you saw um, on, on the map, is, uh, I mean, it's, I believe, depending on who you ask and how you count, it's either 14,000 or 17,000 islands. And wow. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. Um, and there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, local languages, um, many of which uh, have been have not had the gospel translated into their language, and that's why there's so much work in Papua and Papua New Guinea because they're so isolated. Um, however, the uh, the language that we learned in Central Java and what all MAF um, MAF families learn it's it's kind of like a trade language. It's the official language of Indonesia. And it's called Bahasa Indonesia, which translated means the language of Indonesia. <laughs> okay. Um, and that's the, that's the formal language and trade language. You'll, um, it's what's used in all of the, the government, um, all, all government settings. It, it's what you'll see. Um, it's the language that they use to write. Uh, and to just sort of give you a, um, a comparison, uh, when I land in some of the villages where I work, I might have an airplane um, full of three or four people, and uh, they all speak, or most of them will speak Bahasa Indonesia, which is the, you know, the big language, but then they will each have two or three other languages. Um, and some of the older folks, they don't have the trade language or the business language because they just grew up in the village before Bahasa Indonesia was the national language. And um, I have to have one of my uh, local friendly village guys give the, the passenger briefing, you know, in the, in the local language, you know, like how mm-hmm. to get out of the airplane, the emergency kit and, and things like that, seatbelts and whatnot. So, uh, so yeah, I guess that's a long answer to your question, but it was the, it's the Bahasa Indonesia is the language that we learned. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So why don't we transition now to talk about the airplanes and the flying that you, you do there? What, what, airplane are you flying now and uh maybe uh, are there other pilots that you're working with and are you all flying the same aircraft or, or other one different ones or, or how does that work yeah so we have um uh we have two types of aircraft um here in in Tarakan and then um uh, we have uh, a total of five and so we have three um turbo Cessna 206s um, and then we have two um, Quest Kodiaks. And um, usually when new guys show up here, and in fact, we have two, two new families who just showed up. And just as of yesterday, I, I finished the checkout for one of the new pilots. And he'll be flying in the 206, which is what you start with. And then probably mm-hmm. in two weeks, I'll be starting um, uh, checking out the, uh, the next new guy. So yeah, you start out in the 206. And then um, as you know, you progress, uh, you'll eventually fly the Kodiak. And that's a little bit different than in, say, Papua, 
uh, where we have other MAF um, uh, bases, they only have Kodiaks and caravans. And so they start off right away um, flying a, you know, a, a turbine aircraft, which is, which is pretty cool. But the learning curve is, is quite steep. Um, starting off here in, uh, in Tadakan as a new guy, you know, you're stepping into a Cessna 206, which is just a little bit bigger and more beefy and powerful than maybe the Cessna 172 you were flying mm-hmm. um, you know, in, uh, in training school. So there's a lot of familiarity there. Um, and, uh, we use a, a, a transition course. Maybe you've heard of, uh, Spokane Turbine Center. Yes. Um, yes. out in Spokane, Washington, they are the premier, uh, training organization for the Quest Kodiak. So all of the, um, MAF pilots who transition in, into the Kodiak, they go out there for a couple weeks of training, which is a lot of fun. It's, it's a great time. It's a great company and everyone there is really experienced and helpful. So. Very good. So yeah, it, it does make sense. Okay, you arrive in Indonesia and you're having to learn about flying there. Uh, at least you're not having to learn a completely new kind of aircraft, right? The 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 two hundred six obviously is a lot a little bit bigger and a lot more powerful than a than a one seventy two or even a one eighty two. But yeah, it, it's not completely foreign as I can imagine it would be stepping into uh, the the Quest with the turbine engine and so forth. Right, and I, I'll even give you another comparison here. Um, as I understand it, uh, the checkout process in Papua, going from you know your basic training aircraft and maybe 500 hours of experience to uh, into the yeah the, the turbine in uh, Papua, that checkout process I've heard takes more than 100 hours um, mm-hmm. to fully understand the airplane, to fully understand the environment uh, that you're flying, how MAF flies. Uh, that's a huge learning curve where here in Tarakan with the 206s, uh, the guy who I just checked out, you know, he's done within, you know, 50 hours or so. And really the only variable there is they fly a little bit differently there in, in Papua, but the, the big variable there is the aircraft. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. That's a big leap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for curiosity's sake, what others, we, we talked about your flight training a little bit, but we didn't really talk about the airplanes. What other air sorts of planes have you flown? And do you have a favorite? Yeah. Um, well, when I was doing uh, flight instruction, um, I, I actually started a little um, flight school and I got it licensed outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we had an old, uh, worn out uh, Cessna 150 straight tail with a really uh-huh really bad paint job. And I must've been a really good salesman to get people to learn how to fly in that airplane because <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a lot of room and, uh, it was just your bare bones. Uh, so yeah, started, um, doing flight instruction in a little Cessna 150. And then I moved over to another, um, FBO to do some instruction there. And they had uh, diamond aircraft, uh, diamond 20 and diamond 40. And that's a Canadian, yeah. uh, weird looking, beautiful, uh, glider looking airplane and just really slick. Um, flying with wings of mercy. It was a whole host of different aircraft, um, depending on who volunteered, um, you know, barons and bonanzas and, you know, some other airplanes that I forget. Uh, but it it was a, you know, bunch of different kinds. Um, and then, uh, with MAF, yeah, almost all of my experience has been in the, in the 206. Um, and I think I've had like seven, 800 hours, um, in the 206 now. So honestly that, that airplane feels like something 
of an extension of my body now as I, as I fly it, thankfully. <laughs> right. So what sort of flights are you taking in the 206? What does your normal day look like? Yeah. So, um, in, in Tonicon, we have maybe two dozen airstrips, um, that we fly, that we service, uh, and, and we serve. Um, and so it becomes, uh, fairly familiar as far as your schedule. Uh, um, we have a, a great office staff who takes care of, um, putting together the flight schedule for the week. So for instance, just yesterday, <clears throat> your flight schedule was mailed out and I'm able to look and see, okay, this is where I'm going. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a saying, um, within war that is not, it's applicable, but it's not like a war type of situation, but the best laid plans never survive the first contact with the enemy or something like that. And, um, I have a Mm -hmm. schedule, it's a best laid plan, but you never really know what you're going to do until you get out there. Um, all of our villages have HF radio, and that's how we communicate with one another as far as what time we're going to be there and how much um, uh, that's, that's funny, I want to say all this in Indonesian um, how much uh, uh, loading um, we can take as far as people and cargo. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know when you first take off in the morning, you start checking in with these villages, uh, there's a very good chance that there's going to be a medical flight or there's going to be some sort of change to your schedule that trumps your just your basic schedule that you were planning to fly. Um, and so uh, the, the different types of flying that we do, like I mentioned before, we do a lot of community service, um, and that's transport. Um, we fly people from point A to point B. Um, some of the more meaningful ones are, like I said, the medical flights. We take the kids to Bible school. We, um, the, the governor in, in our area exclusively flies with MAF because of our, our safety record. Um, and, uh, we fly pastors, them to different villages, um, and a lot of cargo, tons of cargo. I mean, you name it, we, we've flown it. Um, one of the more meaningful cargo flights, uh, we, uh, there was a police officer out on the Malaysian border and his church paid for. I think it was like 500 kilos of Bibles uh, to be um, brought out to his village, and then they were hiked across the border into Malaysia. And I, I feel comfortable say, uh, saying that here, just because I, they're, they're so isolated. There's no way that I don't know. Right. I don't. I don't think it's ever going to get back to anybody important. <laughs> I hear you. So, how does flying on the mission field compare to flying back home? Yeah, I'd say. Uh, there was something that my, that our chief pilot told me, um, when I first arrived here and I found this to be very true. Um, I don't think I ever really understood the PIC mentality until I started flying out here. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I think that in the United States, like I had 1100 hours of experience before I started flying out here, but, um, in the United States, there, there's such a large uh, system that is supporting you as a pilot when you fly. Uh, weather is easy to get to. Air traffic control can help. You know, your GPS is, is always incredibly accurate. Um, you know, depending where you're flying, um, uh, you know, maybe weather isn't 
as big of an issue as it might be here. Maybe you're not flying in the mountains. Maybe you don't have, you know, a medical patient in the back, you know, that sort of pressure. Um, and that's not to say that flying in the States is easy by any means. I'm just saying that the variables out here, uh, it's almost like this place made me into a PIC where, you know, we don't fly uh, two pilots. It's just me. And so I'm always having to um, reevaluate my resources, uh, fuel, time, what's the weather doing, you know, what, what's the importance of this flight. Um, and that's a, you know, you're on your own, right, more or less. Uh, and so, yeah, it's that PIC mentality that I didn't realize you could really get to this sort of level um, flying with all the support that you have in the United States, for sure. Okay, that's interesting. I, I, I guess the mistakes and errors in judgment that we obviously try not to make here at home, but we do and get away with, yeah, uh, they're 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 much more serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what would you say is the most exciting part about being a missionary pilot? You know, that's uh, I think everyone would, all the pilots out here would answer that differently. Um, you know, I it it's hard. I mean, it's all exciting, but it's all monotonous as well. I mean, okay. it's. It's, it's this thing that goes hand in hand and, and some days I'm out flying and I'm doing this, this incredibly hopeful service to, you know, to these people and it's glorifying God and I think that I'm serving Him and that brings so much satisfaction but it's the same route <laughs> that I've flown dozens and dozens of times and I've, you know, hundreds of hours out here doing this. Um, and so it, it, it's really got to go hand in hand. It's exciting and it's, and it's monotonous. And I'll, I'll, I'll sort of explain that in an anecdotal story here. Um, we do lots and lots of uh, medical flights. And, uh, you know, when you fly into a village and you land and the, the family is there and, you know, it's either a kid or it's somebody's wife or a grandparent or a mother who had a baby but hasn't stopped bleeding. Just these are, I hate to use the word exciting. Um, it's, it's just incredibly meaningful. And there is an excitement that you get out of that for sure, and a, and a, an appropriate excitement because you're doing something that's helping somebody. Um, but we do so many medical flights that they start to become um, something of, of routine. So it's this, it's this partnering of the exciting and, and the monotonous that sort of characterizes um, this sort of uh, this sort of job. Um, I guess to to back it off just a little bit to some other things that are exciting. Um, the weather out here is incredibly beautiful. Um, the 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 terrain and and the beauty of of Borneo. It's the second largest rainforest in in the world. Um, it's I I have, to, I have to pinch myself sometimes to think that I'm. I, I get to do this. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, I feel so totally thankful and, um, uh, yeah. Okay. So what would you say is the most difficult part about what you do? Saying no, mm. that, uh, that is the most difficult thing. Um, we only have so many pilots. Um, we only have so many airplanes and, um, when, somebody has a legitimate need and you have to say no, 
that is very difficult. Um, and sometimes we just don't have enough resources and sometimes you have to say no because uh, the requests never end and you have to guard your own margin. And you tell somebody, no, I can't come fly that flight on the weekend because I have to rest. Mm-hmm. And um, that is very difficult because you come out here thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it my all and I'm here to serve people. Um, and if you fly like that, if you do give it your all, if you fly five days a week until 5 p.m. and you're pushing weather every day and you're running on the ragged edge, I mean, that's when you make mistakes and that's not good for anybody. Um, so, yeah, I think the most difficult part of flying out here is, is saying no when you, when you need to say no. Very good. So just kind of playing off of that, what sort of safeguards do you have in place with regard to whether I've already flown X amount of hours in today, how do you keep yourself from doing something dangerous because this person really does need to be taken to the hospital? Yeah. I think that takes a lot of uh, uh, maybe uh, self-discipline and self-discovery as far as who you are and your ability to say no and, and to self-regulate your margin because there's no rule, there's no regulation, there's no sort of legislation that will ultimately keep you from making a bad decision. It may help, but ultimately, like I said, you're that PIC and you've got to make the decision to do the right thing. And that takes some experience because sometimes we make decisions and we don't know any better. I mean, I started flying out here and, you know, you start pushing into some weather, some bad weather, and you're like, I think I can make it through there. And then you're in it and you're like, whoop, that was a very bad decision. Um, And uh, hopefully you don't make too many of those mistakes uh, before you learn to be cautious. Um, I'm thankful for the posture that MAF has taken as far as its leadership with the, the, the posture that leadership takes with its pilots. And from our time in candidacy through my experience with our, with our chief pilot here and all of the instructor pilots, um, they have, I have never felt pressure to complete a flight. Um, they, they respect the, the pilot and they say, if, if you think it looks bad, you need to come home. And they even give you some data behind that. They say that you could, in a, in a given year, you could fly all the way to your destination and you could cancel and fly all the way home and uh, you could do that for an entire year. You'd not complete one of your flights, and that would actually be less of a um, that would be less of a burden on MAF when it comes to its personnel and finances than if you had a wreck. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- they're just trying to instill in us that if you don't like how it looks, or if you're not sure you can land the airplane safely or push through that weather, then you need to come home. We will fly tomorrow. Um, and, uh, and so that's one of the margins, one of the things that's been instilled in all the MF pilots that, or that's been my experience. And so I feel a real comfortability to cancel, um, to say, no, I can't do it. Um, even though sometimes that's very hard. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I'd say that's one of the things that we do, um, to stay safe. Okay. So do you have a particular memory or a story from your time there that, that just really stands out 
uh, above the rest? We have so many different experiences here, but, but one that sort of sticks out, um, Lately, I've been really encouraged to and challenged to to pray with um, uh, with the medical flights before we take off. Like actually praying for the um, for the person, and because sometimes you get so um, uh, you get so uh, you know locked and loaded and engaged with your schedule and the the mechanics of flying that you just land, you load, and you get out of there and you get them to where they're going. Um, and so to take that time and to um, to pray for this person, I mean, I think that as a Christian, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us and the fact that we insert ourselves into these situations, I mean, that has more power in it than anything I could ever do with an airplane, mm-hmm. by far. Um, and I'm, I have, I live with the belief that... Um, uh, that Christ's kingdom is already establishing itself here on earth and that ultimately the end result of, of God's plan is wholeness and his kingdom established here on earth. So I know that's coming. And when I'm with these sick people, I know that in, in Christ's kingdom, there is no sickness. There is no cancer. There is, there are no broken bones. There, there, there is, there is, there isn't this stuff. And so for me to ask for the kingdom early (laughs) to say, God, Mm -hmm. I know your kingdom is coming. I know your intent for this person. And I'm just asking for it early. Like that just gives me so much. um, uh, uh, I don't know. That just makes me feel bold that I can ask for these things. And so a specific story I remember, nothing miraculous happened, but I'm starting to pray for these medical patients on the ground. And typically there's a lot of people who show up to send off their um, uh, send off their family member? Um, it was a mixed group of um, Christians and then also um, Muslims. And uh, to just take a beat and to pray, you know, I told everybody, "Hey, we're going to pray. I don't care if you're you're Muslim or Christian. Like, we're gonna we're gonna pray for this person." And it was uh, it was interesting. It was just like a moment where. Um, you know, these Muslims, I don't know who they're praying to. And, you know, I have assumptions about what they believe, but, uh, to be praying for a sick person and for me to be saying, yeah, we're, we're praying to, to, to God and to Jesus for this situation. That was just really meaningful, um, uh, to me. So that's just one moment that sticks out in my mind. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's neat that you realize that I have this skill and this training and I have this airplane and, and maybe that's just the tool that God has used to place me in this particular situation, mm-hmm. in this moment, at this particular time, for this purpose, and 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 I, I should take advantage of that. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's talk about some struggles that you have had along the way, whether it was during flight training or financial struggles to to pay for flight training or to raise mm-hmm. uh, the funds to, to and support to, to get to the mission field in the first place? Or even was there a maneuver that you had a particularly hard time learning or a particular certificate or rating or maybe even a failed check ride along the way? Just I want to be clear to the people listening that it's not an easy process. You've already yeah. said that a little bit, but let's let's talk about that some more. Yeah, I'd say um, this whole process is non-linear, and and what I mean by that is that as you move forward, it doesn't always mean that you move up. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. 
Um, I think, like I mentioned before, I, I don't come from a real strong technical background. And so uh, I struggled not, not only with the, uh, with the material, but also kind of like with my own self-confidence going through maintenance school and then the aviation, um, the, yeah, the aviation portion as well. Uh, and yeah, I, um, I, I busted my IFR check ride and then, um, I failed my first CFI check ride. And, and so, uh, yeah, they're not easy things for sure. I mean, there's some pilots out there, they, they, they pass everything and that's fine. Um, but that, that wasn't my experience for sure. Um, so I, like I mentioned before, I'm just sort of uh, sometimes shocked, but also I, I stand on what God is doing here, that I'm, I'm the one who is here in Indonesia working when some of the guys that I trained with are much better pilots or mechanics than I am. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I'd say uh, sort of dealing with yourself first, um, finding your own confidence and trying not to compare and just moving forward with at the pace that you know you feel the aptitude for, uh, and and realizing that that's okay, you know that's uh, that's difficult. Um, a particular maneuver uh, I had when I started flying with MAF. Um, maybe one portion that I forgot to mention during the you know your entry process is after you've done candidacy and after you've uh, been accepted and you do your fundraising and you're getting ready to go, you will go back to MAF for two weeks of flight training. And that's called standardization. Basically MAF teaches you how to fly the airplane the way that we fly the airplane. Okay. And during this process, I started landing left of center line all the time. And with the type of flying that we do and the strips that we fly to, our margins are very, uh, very s- small. They're safe. They're very safe, but it, there there really isn't a whole lot of room to land left of sem- center line in some of the places where we fly. Mm-hmm. And um, I I just couldn't fix it, and my flight instructor couldn't fix it. And I thought, wow, I'm gonna wash out. Like <laughs> they're gonna, you know, they're not gonna let me let me pass. But I ended up flying with a different flight instructor, and, and this isn't any sort of a critique of the first guy I flew with, but for some reason, sort of giving, getting a different point of view or a different, I don't know, little change of scenery, so to speak, um, yeah. it sort of worked itself out. So I, I was very scared that at the moment when it mattered the most, as far as moving on with, with MAF, I wasn't able to land on the center line. Uh, so <laughs> that was uh, certainly concerning for that season. Yeah, something that seems like it'd be so simple to correct, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And we all we all have those things. I was actually flying with an instructor today, and one of my habits that I just cannot correct is that I um, don't square off my turn the way I should from base to final, mm-hmm. and and I know it's because. I'm so scared of overshooting and then turning yeah. too sharp and getting into that scenario. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All that. And, yep. and, and so I make this kind of meandering, <laughs> <laughs> but that has its own set of problems. And he's, this guy's flown with me a, a few times and I'm actually working on my flight instructor mm, uh, good. thing now. And, and, and he told me today at the end, he said, listen, if you don't fix that, 
you're going to teach a whole bunch of students <laughs> to fly that way. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and, and, and I told him, I know I'm doing it every time and I should be able to fix it. Uh, but mm. so, yeah, I, I can relate. Well, I can, I can tell you, uh, the guy who I just finished checking out, um, and, uh, uh, I, I actually, he might listen to this podcast, so he might appreciate the mention or he might not. Um, <laughs> um, so he, I, he would fly his, uh, his patterns, uh, rather tight. And, um, what he would end up doing is he would be on final, um, approach way too high, and he would have to fly the airplane really slow and very steep, which is required at some of the places where we fly to. Um, but in most of the places where he's flying to right now, that's not required. Like you don't need to fly the airplane on that ragged edge, even though sometimes we do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so teaching him to spread out his traffic pattern, to square the turns so that he has more time to get the things done and he's not high and rushed, uh, that was a sort of something that we had been working on. And I, I, I sort of made a joke out of it because to fly the airplane at like, you know, a 55, 54 knot approach, fairly steep with very, you know, little, little energy um, to reduce when you transition to the flare and you touch down right on your spot. Like that's an impressive thing to do. So I, I kept telling this guy, you don't need to impress me. <laughs> like <laughs> you don't need to fly the airplane on the ragged edge like this. You can spread it out. Yeah, so you have to make good decisions so you don't have to use your use your skills. Uh you want to kind of, you know, good good decision making usually uh trumps all, all of the skills you have in your your skill set. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, what about some struggles that you've had since being on the mission field? Yeah, um I would go back to saying um just uh sort of struggling with that significance portion. Um, and realizing that, uh, you know, it's not the ministry and the fun flying, uh, and, 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 and the meaningful things we do with the airplane that that's going to bring satisfaction. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, that's, that's ultimately going to be God. Uh, I think what I would tack on to that is, you know, I thought that I would arrive here, uh, as a fairly mature spiritual, good understanding about who God is and how I relate to him. But God has really taken my experience here in Indonesia to deconstruct um, some of the assumptions that I had of him. And uh, I, I, I've been in something of a spiritual shadowlands for about two years. Um, and that's completely surprising to me. I, I, I thought that, you know, when you finally arrive in ministry, like God is going to be closer to you than ever and your life is going to make a whole lot of sense. And, um, I, yeah, I, I think I mentioned in the beginning of our interview about having doubt and, and fear. Um, and even though I still have those things, I think that I've, I've become more and more comfortable in this gray season that God has me in right now. And I'm optimistic and hopeful. And I have faith that, uh, that, uh, God is bringing me through to something, something even better. Um, so yeah, that's been, that's been fairly, uh, fairly difficult that I wasn't anticipating when I finally arrived here. 
So how have your family and friends been helpful to you, both in the obstacles in, in your training and, and just the hurdles you had to overcome to get to the mission field, and maybe even in these, this current uh, struggle and situation that you're working through? Yeah, uh, thankfully, as I told my parents when I was 12 that I wanted to do this, they had plenty of time to, you know, you know, get ready to see us off, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and my wife's parents are kind of the same way. Joy is interested in missions when, you know, she was younger. So she has, uh, her, her parents are behind us. The, the only big struggle here, Jimmy, is, is that we have the only grandchild on both sides. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, they, uh, our parents have come out to visit us, but it's very clear they're not here to see us. Uh, <laughs> they're here to get, get grandchild time. So yeah, we've been really, um, thankful to have supportive extended family. I know that not, um, not everybody has that experience and, um, and yeah, that can be a real challenge when, when family puts pressure on you to come home or, you know, they don't, they're, they're not behind why you're here. It's uh, certainly challenging. I, I've seen that in friends of mine. Yeah. So that, that, that is great. So they've supported you in just saying, yes, we believe this is where you need to be and what you need to be doing, even though we would like to live near our grandchild. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that, that is certainly a difficult thing for them too. I imagine. So it is, you are very fortunate uh, that they do support you in that way. Mm, Thanks. Well, is there someone you can think of or maybe more than one person who has served as a mentor to you along the way? Uh, yeah, I think of um, uh, three uh, different flight instructors that I've had. <clears throat> you know, this is just speaking in aviation, but it goes beyond that. Um, two of them were in Grand Rapids, and, and one of them is uh, is our chief pilot here in Indonesia. And um they uh, they did much more for me than just teach me how to fly an airplane. Um, I, I think of both of them as giving me opportunities within aviation um, to build relationships, to grow my skills. Um, and they also taught me um, uh, just, oh, man, in, in every, every profession, there are jerks. You know, I, I, I could use a stronger word, but I won't. Um, and they just really taught me to not burn bridges, to be respectful, um, to know that aviation is a very small community. And if, if you are friendly and you are kind, and if you believe in the people who are within aviation, like if you believe in their success, that's going to come around someday to, um, to, to bless you in, in, in some sort of way. And I, Jimmy, I have seen this and probably you have when you have the guy who's just, or gal who, you know, they just, I don't know, they're, they're really prideful or they're not kind or something and they develop a reputation for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they just struggle in their relationships and maybe within aviation. Um, and so I'm thankful for those guys who taught me about that in Grand Rapids. And then also here in Indonesia, our chief pilot, um, it's kind of, uh, you know, we just don't fly together. We live together and, uh, we have Bible study together and we're the only Westerners on the, on the Island. So we're kind of all like forced friends, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, but, uh, yeah, this guy has done a lot to teach me how to fly safely here and to be effective with the airplane. But, you know, he teaches me things about life 
um, primarily through his, his, his example and how he serves. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I know I didn't get here on my own. I I've gotten here because of the time and investment of other people. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful for that for sure. Okay. Well, do you have any final suggestions or advice or encouragement for prospective missionary pilots? Yeah, I'd say, uh, I'd say keep at it. Um, and keep, keep going until you realize, until you get to where you're going, <laughs> or you realize that maybe there's some other dream out there for you. Um, and the only reason I say that is because I, I, I have seen some guys who really hold on to this thing. And, um, uh, you know, maybe they hold on to it a little bit too tightly. And it's, and it's just not working for their family. Um, and so you need to be sensitive to that. I really think that, uh, that my first ministry is my family and, and I will be doing this and we will be doing this so long as we feel God's blessing in it. And so long as, um, my, my family is healthy. Uh, and so those are things that you can pick up on even, even in training. Um, and so to start being sensitive to, uh, not just whether you're flying the airplane well, but also to uh, just, is this lifestyle a, a good fit for you? So, Yeah, and we, we haven't really gone into this, but this is clearly a calling that your wife has to be 100% on board with as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, that's a, that's a good point. Um, it's important to be on board because you have to be a team, um, have to be. And, and, and whether your marriage is like, uh, uh, like an egalitarian type, right. Where, you know, you're, you're both, uh, you know, you're both leading and you're both sort of working on problems together all the time, or, or maybe your, your style of marriage is something uh, like different, more like a supportive role where one spouse is doing one thing and the other Mm -hmm. spouse is, you know, doing, you know, their giftings in their area. Um, Either way you look at it, you've really got to be partnered um, because you won't survive out here if, uh, if you're not both on board. And we've, we've, we've seen that. So, um, yeah, and that's why I say, you know, that's why I say, Jimmy, you need to be evaluating even through your, your training process or maybe in your early years of your marriage. Like, you know, is this, is this the lifestyle that we can really commit to or, or go give it a try and then make an evaluation when you get there, even though you put in a lot of time and energy anyway. So yeah, yeah, I'd agree with you. You got to both be on board. Right. And not everyone is called to do that sort of thing. And it doesn't make you a second class Christian or any, anything like that. We're all gifted and called to do different things. The, the key thing is we are all called to be part of God's kingdom yeah. work on this earth in whatever way he has gifted us and equipped us and, and, and led us into. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else I, I haven't asked you about that you would like to, to add or to share? Mm, no, I, you know, this has been really thorough and I've, I, I appreciate your questions. They're, they're thoughtful. I think they're very fair and appropriate for, you know, people who are, might be interested in this. Uh, and I, I hope that, um, you know, people who do listen to this, they, they get some insight into, um, you know, the, the excitement and the reality of what we do. Yes. Both the excitement and the reality. Yeah. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. because I, I imagine there's a. Uh, it's easy to have a romantic view about <laughs> about what is yeah. uh, what is going on there, and then there is the there's the reality of it, right? Yeah. Well, if you've ever seen um, uh, any of the you know videos that any missions organization produces. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, I love them. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I think they are totally awesome. And airplanes and jungle make for great fodder, you know, for for videos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so cool. But um, yeah, there's a whole nother side of uh, of, of reality to, to what we do that's um, just as important, just as meaningful, just as real as all that exciting stuff we do, too. Right. Well, Pete, how can our audience be praying for you? Um, well, specifically... Uh, our team here in Tarakan, we're going through um, a fairly large staff transition. We had about nine families uh, leave our program over the past two years for a whole host of reasons. Um, and we are retooling up um, with new pilots. And uh, our program has not felt as effective as it has been in the past. But I'm incredibly optimistic about what God is doing here right now and what he has plans, uh, planned for us and, uh, the new families that are coming in. It's, it's great to see them, um, start their training and, and, and bring excitement and, and their ideas of ministry. And it's, we're, we're, we're headed down a really good path here. Um, but it's still, it's still rather difficult. So <laughs> you could pray for our team. Uh, that would be great. We will do that. Well, how, tell us how people can connect with you on social media or elsewhere to learn more about you and see your awesome pictures and, and maybe even become a supporter of your, your ministry through prayer or even finances. Yeah. Thanks for that question. Um, so we have a a bio on our MAF website and if you go to www.maf.org front slash Neil, that is our, um, our bio and there are links there to more information, our Facebook page and, um, uh, just how to support us, whether, yeah, through prayer or financially or finances. Um, I think the area, if you're really interested in what we're doing, I, I Instagram a whole lot. And so maybe every day or other day I'll post a picture with a comment or a story. And I'm always answering questions with, you know, people want to know what we're doing. Um, and, uh, my Instagram name is, uh, Peter underscore pilot underscore M-A-F. And uh, feel free to follow and ask questions about what we do. It'd be great. Okay, well, I will take and I will put both of those links in the show notes for this for this episode, and they'll be available on okay. our website. So, so anyone who wants to find you on the M-A-F website or on Instagram uh, will be able to do so that way. Great. Well, Pete, you did not disappoint tonight. <laughs> it's it's late for me here yeah. and I have had an absolutely fantastic time uh, listening to you and hearing the details of your story and of your work in Indonesia. Uh, you are doing great things there and I'm, I am thankful for individuals like you who are willing to forego the comforts and convenience of home in obedience to Jesus's call upon your life. So mm-hmm. Thank you again for your time tonight, and I do hope we can stay in touch and speak again soon, okay? 
Yeah, well, I know we um, we connect on Instagram quite a bit, so we'll we'll keep that up. And I just ask that the Lord would bless you and your family and your church and also within this podcast for what you're endeavoring with it. And I, I think it's awesome. So thanks for your time, Jimmy. And um, we'll stay connected. Well, that's it for this episode. We thank you once again for listening. You can learn more about the podcast and subscribe to it by visiting plainfaith.com. That's P-L-A-N-E faith.com. You will also find links there to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can do that as well by visiting patreon.com forward slash plainfaith. And of course, Jimmy would love to hear from you personally. So feel free to email him at jimmy at plainfaith.com or by using the contact form on our website. Until next time, remember that God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The intro and outro music for the Plain Faith podcast is a song called Chipper by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.com.